I was just going to give you a high-level view of who I am. Well, you know my name, but what you probably don't know is that I was a professing atheist for a good portion of my adult life, and I was a professing atheist because I made a decision to be an atheist. And I made that decision March 3rd, 1989, because that was the year that I was, my first day being stationed in the Philippines. And I remember going outside the, the gate and seeing all the bars and the beautiful women. I'm like, ooh, belief in a God was going to conflict with the way I want to live my life. <laughs> now, before I wasn't a Christian, but I wasn't an atheist. I mean, I, 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 I knew that God existed, but, you know, he ain't bother me, I ain't bother him. But now, I didn't even want to even go that far, because I just wanted to say, you know what, I just want to, I don't want to have no guilt about what I want to do. I just want to do my own thing. And God let me do my own thing. Exactly what he did. And boy, well, like I said, this is just a a very short overview, but I can go into detail, but I won't. But let's just say uh, when God turns us over to our own desires and lust, it's not a pretty thing. And it wasn't a pretty thing for me. So I became addicted to those two things that I wanted to leave God for. And I became a believer in 1997. But the interesting thing is, and I always tell people, is that even when I was in the Navy and even when I was professing to be an atheist, uh, when I would go out to sea, I would have a hard time. Because, see, I love to go out on the deck, especially at night. And I don't know if you all know this, because you may not see it because you're around the city lights, but have you ever looked up at the stars when, when you're not around the city lights? And it's, just seeing, it's like you, you can literally see millions of stars. And just looking at that at nighttime, it would just cause, my, cause me to like gasp, like, <gasps> because I knew Pookie didn't do that. I knew no one I knew did that. And it would inspire, it would just it would build business of all. Of course, I didn't know that Romans 1 was happening to me at that time. But I would, you know, whenever I got back to land, I would double down on it. And one of the, reasons, one of the ways I doubled down on it was by uh, attacking Christians. I mean, I, I hated Christians because... You know, I didn't want to think about God because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And in, in 97, I, I, met, I met a young lady who my uncle introduced me to. And she actually had an influence, influence on my life because she was the first Christian I ever met in my life who talked the talk and walked the walk. Now, I'll be honest with you. I was interested in her. My interests were, let's just say, carnal. <laughs> but... But what, I, I did go to church one night. She invited me to go to church with her on a Friday. And I remember thinking to myself, who in the world goes to church on a Friday night? That's happy hour. You go to happy hour on a Friday night. You don't go to no church. This ain't Sunday morning. But I did go. Well, after I had me a couple of drinks. I did go. But I, you know, the Holy Spirit met me there that night. And I just, it, but it was a very emotional experience. And after that experience, I wanted to see if it was real because it was just emotion. And I did research and found out, wow. Look at all the evidence for Christianity. Not one Christian ever shared any of this with me. I can't believe that in all those debates and dialogues I had with Christians, not one of them ever said anything. And I basically decided right then and there that that's what I was going to do. I was going to dedicate my life to doing exactly that. So I was a software engineer at NASA, quit my job, sold my house, moved here to Charlotte, went to Southern Evangelical Seminary to study under the best, Dr. Norman Geisler. And that's what I do now. I, I, uh, I have a TV show called Giving an Answer, which comes on every week, local TV show. 
Uh, it's also a YouTube channel. And basically, that's what I do. I give answers. I give answers to people. And I'm just basically trying to do what, what I wish somebody had done to me a little bit earlier. So Now, what comes to your mind when I, when I say crusades? Give me some ideas. What comes to your mind? Okay. Yep, that's the big one. <laughs> okay, any, anything else? Knights on horseback. Attempt to regain the Holy Land for whatever reason the Western religious authorities had. Okay. Behind what they were claiming. Behind what they were, because you know they had to, what they were claiming couldn't be true. It had to be something evil. It had to be an evil reason why. Because God forbid that Christians would actually do something Christianly. See, see, the problem with you guys is y'all are too educated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, y'all actually know too much. I mean, I'm expecting y'all to say, uh, you, you know, you just, just, just Muslim killers. <laughs> just, just, you just decided to kill all the Muslims in the world. Because usually the politically correct answer is, is that the Crusades was the worst event that, that ever happened in the history of the church, well, maybe even mankind. It was just so horrific of what the church did during the Crusades. That's generally how people, or generally how it's portrayed. So we're going to talk about what I've discovered during my investigation of the Crusades. Now, my talk, the way I like to talk is, or give my talks is I like to, if you have questions, you can just stop me right then and ask me. I may, I may know the answer, I may not. But I tend to like to do that because at least that way I know that I'm answering a question. And I, I, I'm going to go through some of this stuff rather fast. I mean, what, what time do I have to? I don't even know what time I have to. So what happened was I, I, I got put all this information together and I was like, this is too long, I got to cut some of it out. Too 20. But I was like, I can't cut it out, it's all so good, I can't cut any of it out. So. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's not going to be a problem. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the Crusades. Here's, here's, here's my roadmap for today. I'm going to do an introduction on exactly what the Crusades are. We'll talk about that. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you the traditional view. This is the traditional view, what most people think of when they think of the Crusades. Then I'm going to give the historical view, which is actually different than the traditional view, and you're going to see why. <coughs> then I'm going to Evaluate those two views. And I'm just going to summarize it, and then we'll be done. So let's begin. So what are the Crusades? Well, that sort of depends on your perspective or the this perspective of the teller. There is a traditionally politically correct, yet historically incorrect view. Then there is a politically incorrect, yet historically accurate view. So in this presentation, I will present both views and make the case for the politically incorrect yet historically accurate view. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I am going to be unbiased because I am biased. Because I am a Christian and I believe Christianity is true and I believe, and so, so everything that I do comes from a Christian perspective. So also, I'm only going to talk about the first crusades. I don't know if you all know this, but there were a bunch of crusades. Matter of fact, they got really crusade happy. It was like... Everybody wanted to do a crusade for almost every reason in the world. But, but the purest one was the first one. That's the one that actually started the whole thing. 
So let's look at the traditional view. This is what most people, most people are taught. This is what the media definitely portrays as the view of the Crusades. And I'm going to look at some of, give some of the background. It's, it is, it is not, not just an example, but pretty much what the example of Christian intolerance. On the eve of the second Christian millennium, the Crusaders massacred some 30,000 Jews and Muslims in Jerusalem, turning the thriving Islamic holy city into a stinking Chanel house. For at least five months, the valleys and ditches around the city were filled with putrefying corpses, which were too numerous for the small number of Crusaders who remained behind after the expedition to clear away. And a stench hung over Jerusalem, where the three religions of Abraham had been able to coexist in relative harmony under Islamic rule for nearly 500 years. So you get this picture of, you know, the, 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 the Muslims who are these peace-loving people who are, you know, going around in, line, in a circle singing Kumbaya, and then these crusaders come in and just start killing folks, just out of the blue. This was actually a article, or actually a quote I got from Karen Armstrong, who is a, she used to be a nun, but she, she has turned into a Western Christian, I mean, a Muslim apologist. So this is her view. The Crusades marched, or Crusaders marched across Europe to the Middle East. Once there, they pillaged and murdered Muslim and Jewish men, women and children indiscriminately and forced the survivors to convert to Christianity. They were the settings for the world's first mass killings and are a blot on the history of the Catholic Church, Europe, and Western civilization. Wow. This, must be, this was a really important event. I mean, it was the first mass, first mass murder. It was, I mean, it was a block not on just the church, but you talk about Europe and all of Western civilization. This is a huge thing. Good grief. That's, I mean, that's just incredible. This has so much power. And let's look at some of the motivations behind the people who were involved in the, in the, in the Crusades from the traditional perspective. Uh, it was basically a church power grab. Christianity rallied an increasingly dissident society against perceived enemies, not actual enemies, just perceived enemies, because, you know, we all know the Muslims were fun-loving people who were, who were dancing around singing Kumbaya, but we perceived them as being enemies, uh, instig instigating attacks upon Muslims, Eastern Orthodox Christians, and Jews. And this is from uh, Ella B. Actually, her book is called The Dark Side of Christianity or Christian History. In roughly 200 years of crusades, thousands, if not millions, that's a big leap. Thousands, if not millions, were killed. I don't even know if there was a million people around at that time. How'd she go to millions? I never heard anywhere where anyone said millions. She went, and it was a big leap, thousands to millions. Not even tens of thousands. Not even hundreds of thousands. It went from, it was from thousands to millions. And not just one million. Millions. <laughs> Another motivation was to force Muslims to convert to Christianity from the traditional view. Far from gaining converts to the Roman Catholic Church, the Crusaders spread a bitter animosity that still lingers today. 
That is why they hate us so much, because of the Crusades. President Bill Clinton said the, re the Crusades is one of the reasons for the current relations between the Middle East and the West. He said, indeed, the first crusade, when the Christian soldiers took Jerusalem, they first burned the synagogue with 300 Jews in it and proceeded to kill every woman and child who was Muslim on the Temple Mound. I can tell you that that story is still being told today in the Middle East, and we are still paying for it. I mean, that's the reason why they hate us, right? It's because of the crusades, because every time we turn around, they're saying, you crusaders, and this is payback for the Crusades. It's even blamed for 9-11. When Osama bin Laden issued his declaration of jihad on February 23, 1998, he did so against the Jews and Crusaders. And it was the Crusades that taught Muslims how to be warlike. They ain't know how to before. Because remember now, they were just, they were singing Kumbaya and all this before, before the Christians arrived and the Christians were these horrible people and taught them how to be, like, wow, you know, we got to learn how to be evil like the Christians. The BBC A&E documentary, The Crusades, 1995, hosted by Terry Jones, claims that the Islamic world was a place of complete peace before the Crusaders arrived and taught the Muslims to be warlike. Last semester, I took the history of Islam. I had to watch this documentary. It was difficult. It's political correctness gone to the nth degree. So we've done the traditional view. Now let's look at the historical view. Now, there aren't any Muslims in here, are there? And the reason why I say that is because this is a picture of Muhammad. And just by showing a picture of Muhammad, I'm, I am doing something really bad. Um, I mean, I could be killed for just for showing a picture. I mean, I, mean, I don't know what he looks like. I mean, I just found this on Google Images or something. I don't know. This is, it just looks like what I would picture him to be. I mean, I'd always picture him with a sword anyway. So this, the, the real background was the rise of Muhammad and Islam. Muhammad lived from 570 to 372, 332 A.D. that Islam sees the world as an open-ended conflict between the land of peace, Dar al-Salam, and the land of war, Dar al-Habak, is the most important legacy of Muhammad. What Muhammad left behind was a war plan. Muhammad was a great general. He was a great warrior. And he trained those who followed him to be great warriors as well. He didn't leave behind a legacy of peace and love. He left behind a legacy of, of war. Uh, let's see, does this work? You see all of this dark stuff? Everything but this was owned by the Muslims. All of this area right here. Now notice they came out of Mecca and they went all the way through here all the way around here, even up to Spain, and even up to here. So within just a short period of time after Muhammad's death, we see the Muslim expansion. And they didn't expand by 
going into a land and saying, would you mind if we rule you for a while? No. They gave them three choices. You can convert, you can die, or you can be our subjects. Those were the choices. Some fought, some just gave up willingly. But they all were conquered based on the sword. That's a pretty big rise in such a small amount of time. So, you, so look at the Byzantine Empire, which is basically the remnants of the Roman Empire. Look at all the, all the land that it had left. And look, you have the, 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 the Muslims right up against their lands. And they're not stopping. It's not like they say, okay, we've come this far. We declare peace now. We're not going any further. No. Because remember now, remember that quote I just mentioned. There are two houses. There's the house of war and the house of peace. If you are not part of the, of the house of peace, which means you are not under the brother of, umbrella of Islam, then you are in the house of war. And war will always be fought against you until you are under the house of peace or the house of Islam. So, this expansion did not happen through peace. So what happened was King Alexis, who was the, the Roman uh, Byzantine emperor, realized that there was a problem, that these Muslims were going to take over the whole, take over everywhere, all of Europe, but I need some help. He had an army, but he needed more help. So what did he do? He went to the Pope, Pope Gregory VII. Now, of course, the Pope doesn't have any armies. I mean, not in and of itself, but the Pope has influence. And that's what they were hoping on, for the Pope to use influence to recruit an army to be used to join for the Crusades. Now, unfortunately, uh, Pope Gregory, he got sidetracked in his own issues that were going on, and it didn't happen during, during, his, during his reign. But he was succeeded by Pope Urban II, who responded to the call and set August 15, 1006 as the departure date for the armies of the Crusades. So now if you look at, if you look at, this thing doesn't work, but if you look at, these are the major, the major routes for people going to the Crusades. But there were, there were people from, coming from all over who were going to the Crusades. And they were pretty much were supposed to meet here in Constantinople. Then they were supposed to cross over into what we see as the Muslim territory there. But here's something I want you to keep in mind, is that <laughs> this wasn't like the Muslim army. These weren't, these weren't um, kings who had these armies, because kings had relatively little power in these countries like Poland and France and Germany. What they had was they had knights. And knights ruled basically their territory. And these knights had their own little personal army so they could fight other knights. Matter of fact, there was a lot of that going on. There were a lot of knights fighting other knights for, for various reasons. So you didn't have, this, you didn't, you didn't have this, this, this one army under this one umbrella, everybody with this single mission. You basically had these scattered uh, um, armies who were, low, who, were, who were loyal only to their knight. They weren't loyal to the king. To the Pope, they were loyal to, you know, to their knight. That's, that's, who, that's who, who they were going for. Well, but let, me, let, let, me, let, me go, let me go back a minute. 
But I do want to say that when they did, they did finally, I mean, they, they got together and it was, it, there was a lot of issues that happened. But somehow, miraculously, they did go through and they, there was, a, there was a, in the sea, it was another place, they, it was the first city they took. Then they took Antioch and then they came down here and they seized Jerusalem for five weeks. And actually, they got somebody on the inside to basically open up the gate and they came in and they took Jerusalem. Now, what happened when they got into Jerusalem? By the standards of the time adhered to by both Christians and Muslims, the Crusaders would have been justified in putting the entire population of Jerusalem to the sword. It is true that many of the inhabitants, both Muslims and Jews, were killed in the fray, yet many were also allowed to purchase their freedom or were simply expelled from the city. Later stories of the streets of Jerusalem coursing with knee-high rivers of blood were never meant to be taken seriously. Medieval people know such a thing to be an impossibility. Modern people, unfortunately, do not. There was, there was a lot of fighting. But I think one of the problems we have is that we, we want everyone to adhere to our understanding of warfare today. The understanding of warfare back then was different. People fought differently. We fight these thorough wars now where we try not to kill the, the women and the children and all the innocent people. We do these selective targeted bombing when we do military campaigns. But that's, that's, how, that's, that's a recent invention. I mean, you, you even look at World War II. When they dropped a the bomb on Hiroshima, they dropped a the bomb on Hiroshima. They didn't bomb it just dropping on a military base. So I think when we, when we judge them, we have to judge them according to their own time. And during their own time, what they were doing is what happened when you were in a war. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Which is why I think we are, which is why I think we lost Vietnam, quite frankly, with you. All right, also in the nature of the Crusades, on August the 11th, the Crusaders took Ascalon and wiped out the entire Egyptian force, securing the Holy Land. Basically what happens when they took Jerusalem, um, Ascalon was, was where the major Egyptian Muslim army was. And the, the, the Muslim army was coming to liberate Jerusalem because they knew that the Crusaders were coming. Well, what the Crusaders did was they attacked them. And caught them by surprise because they, they, they had the guts to attack them and wipe them out. So now when they wipe them out, now basically the whole area is open to the Crusaders because they have basically wiped out the Muslim army. At this point, most of the Crusaders return home. Because uh, there's, this, there's this view that the Crusaders were these, uh, these people who were hungry for, for wealth and power and land, and that's why they were in it. No, that's not, that's not what happened at all. Most of them left right after their vow was, uh, was fulfilled, and I'm going to mention that in a minute. And for... I may have already mentioned this, but I'm going to mention it again just for those who weren't here. But on my website, givinganswer.org, I have this PowerPoint. So if you just want to, you know, if you want to listen, you take notes if you want to. I, I can't take notes and listen. I, I, my brain, I, my wife says I can't, I can't multitask in anything. So I can't even multitask with that. So, Givinganswer.org, it's up here, but you probably can't see it. Givinganswer.org, and if you go to givinganswer.org slash handouts, you will see this actual, I actually have that up there. It's actually up there right now, as a matter of fact. All right. So most of them return home right after that. Christians and Muslims lived side by side in peace for nearly 200 years. So the Crusades, I mean, they were actually able to hold that land for, for quite a while. 200 years is a long time when you think about it. I mean, this, 
this nation is around 200 years old, so I mean, they held it for a while. Well, in 1187, the greatest cities fell to the Muslim leader Saladin, culminating the fall of Jerusalem on October the 2nd. So then they took it back eventually through Saladin. Here's another motivation. is basically to turn back the Muslim aggression. Within a century, Arab Muslims had conquered Persia, Egypt, and Syria. When the Muslim forces originally exploded into Byzantine lands, Christians were too fragmented to oppose Islam. I mean, think about it. How could they have opposed Islam? You've got, like I said, it's not like Europe was a country and they had one army. You had all these different nations, and they're fighting each other. That's the bottom line. They're fighting each other. I mean, France fighting Germany, and you got the, uh, you've got the East fighting the West, and they're trying to maintain their own their own area, they're not thinking about stuff that's going on hundreds of miles away. And so there was no getting one army together because there was no such unity to be able to allow that to happen. The crusade, first and foremost, was a war against Muslims for the defense of the Christian faith. At some point they realized, you know what, if we don't do this then we're all going to be speaking Arabic. <laughs> It was also, and I know a lot of people are going to find this blasphemy, but it was actually an act of mercy, too. The Christians in the East were suffering at the hands of the Turks. Let me go back, let me go back a minute. When, when the Turks took Jerusalem and that whole area, when they first went in, they just started killing folk. They just started just killing folk, burning stuff down. But then they realized, you know, a whole lot of people, Christians, come here for pilgrimages, so we'll just let people come and we'll get money from, like, you know, from the tourists and stuff. So which is, which is basically why they left Jerusalem pretty much well stand because they were, because people were always going through pilgrimages there and they were able to get money from that. But it got to the point where they were clamping more and more down on the Christians and they were making it more and more difficult for those who were making pilgrimages, pilgrimages there and for those who were there uh, who lived there. The, the Muslims were becoming more and more anti-Christian. In fact, in, uh, in 1004, Caliph, Caliph means, uh, or Caliph, that means, that's the head of the whole Muslim nation, uh, Abu Ali al-Mansur al-Hakim ordered the destruction of churches, the burning of crosses, and the seizure of church property. Over the next 10 years, 30,000 churches were destroyed and untold numbers of Christians converted to Islam simply to save their lives. In 1009, he commanded that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem be destroyed along with several other churches. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is where they, they put that church there with the tomb of Jesus actually is. But does it sound like they were, everybody was just living in peace and it was just, oh, you know, lovey-dovey and everybody was, you know, the, you know the, everything was just good? It doesn't sound like everything was good. At least, I guess it was all good if you were a Muslim, but I, I, I imagine some Christians would make the difference with you. Another one, another motivation was reclaiming of Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem is the most holy city for Christianity. Jerusalem, the center of the world, the focus of God's interventions in history and a relic since its streets have been walked by Christ and its ground has soaked up Christ's blood. So it, it sort of was a slap in the face of Christianity that Jerusalem would be in the hands of Muslims. 
the holy city of Jerusalem? What about the personal motivations? Because we always hear about you know, some per personal motivations being greed. Well, knights were willing to make profound sacrifices for the crusade because it was in their nature to do so. We're talking about chivalry. We're talking about knights. We're talking about going back to that whole sense of honor. These were those people. Those people actually did exist. Like the whole the King Arthur thing, people who were chivalrous and, and actually fought for what they thought was right. These were those people. By defending the church, they defended all that was good and true in the world. In short, most noblemen who joined the Crusades did so from a simple and sincere love of God. Now, I'm not saying all of them did, because you're going to always have some people in the mix who want to have ulterior motives. But, but for the most part, these were people who thought that they were doing the church good. And not only that, they were risking everything that they had to do that. Most of them had to sell a lot of their property and lands in order to be able to make the trip across. They, I mean, they, 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 uh, they had to give up a whole lot. And some of them didn't even know if they were coming back. They were doing this. They were doing all the sacrifices because they believed that Christ was calling them to do this. Because they believed that Christ was, Christ was calling them to come and save the Holy Land against the, against the Muslim invaders. That is why they were doing it. Each crusader took a pilgrim's vow to reach the Holy Sepulchre. He was a pilgrim first and foremost. The oath he swore was to God, not to the Pope or any other man. A crusader re received a remission from sins just as would a pilgrim who traveled to a holy shrine. So that's what the Pope, when the Pope made the declaration, he said, okay, you know, you're going you're to be forgiven for your sins, but they were already doing that. This is not the first time they, the, the church said they were going to forgive people for their sins. Anytime you went to any holy shrine, they would do that. But they took a vow to reach the holy sepulcher. And to, because the whole, the whole point was to, one of the main objectives was to go ahead and free Jerusalem from Muslim occupation. A crusader army was, in effect, a loosely organized mob of soldiers, clergy, and servants, and followers heading in roughly the same direction for roughly the same purposes. Once launched, it could be controlled no more than the wind or the sea. Because like I said, there, weren't, there wasn't this, you know, like you, you picture the United States going to war and there's the central command. But you had all these fragmented, and that was one of the problems that we had with the, with the crusade. I'm surprised the first crusades actually accomplished anything because there was a lot of infighting. There was a lot of, there was, you know, this, this baron or this lord uh, fighting against that baron and that lord. Who's going to be the one to come to Jerusalem first? Who's going to rule Jerusalem first? I mean, all of this bickering was going on because there was no real leader. But somehow they still managed to do it. Approximately 150,000 people across Europe responded to Urban Second's summons by donning the cross of the pilgrim. The vast majorities were poor, and many were women and elderly or both. Now, not all 150,000 actually went to the Holy Land. A lot of them just, you know, served locally. But what's interesting, I find interesting here, is that there were, there were poor people. There were a lot of poor people here. Matter of fact, some have called it the, uh, the first crusades as the peasants' crusade because there were a lot of poor people who did that. What is clearest in the documentary record is that the vast majority of these knightly crusaders were not spare sons, but instead the lords of their estates. It was not those with the least to lose who took up the cross, but rather those with the most. They were putting it all on the line for the cause of Christ. These were people who were going to war 
for the cause of Christ. The chief motivation was a genuine idealism. Riley Smith is one of, probably one of the best uh, scholars in this area, and I'm going to mention later, he actually he actually has interpreted or translated the actual charters from from the uh, Crusades for the different Crusaders who were going out letters correspondence correspondences. So he actually has a very good understanding of what the Crusades actually were from the Crusaders themselves, not from BBC. Very few crusaders, as I mentioned before, remained in the Holy Land once their vows were filled. They went there to fulfill their vows, and once that was done, they went home. They weren't there trying to occupy the place. They weren't there trying to just grab the land up for themselves. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the land, any land that was um, conquered, was supposed to go back to the Roman emperor. That didn't really happen because what, well, it's a little side story. But what actually happened is that. While the, while the Crusaders were in charge of Jerusalem, they were attacked by some Muslims, and it didn't look real good at all. And the king was coming to help them, and he heard, he heard from, from, from other people, don't go because they, they're about to get wiped out. You're going to get wiped out if you go. So you might as well just go going back to where you came from. And he went back, and the Crusaders prevailed, but they saw that as an act of treason. So they were like, we ain't giving you nothing. You're all best off now. I mean, you left us out here to die. That's just a little side note. When the Crusaders were victorious in established kingdoms and principalities in the Middle East, they generally let the Muslims in their domains live in peace, practice their religion freely, build new mosques and schools, and maintain their own religious tribunals. They didn't come in and just tear everything down. They didn't come in and just change everything. I mean, they allowed, they allowed the Muslims to be Muslims. They didn't... There wasn't this mass forced conversions that we hear about. The crusader sack of Jerusalem was a heinous crime, particularly in light of the religious and moral principles they professed to uphold. However, by military standards of the day, it was not out of the ordinary. Now, it was wrong because they were supposed to be representing Christ. So some of the things they did did not represent Christ very well. It was fine as far as, I mean, it was, it was online with what they were doing of that day. But the Muslims themselves didn't have a higher standard to which they were to be held accountable to. They, their standard that they were going against, their standard that they were going with was the standard of, Muslim, of uh, Muhammad, who was, a, who was a warrior. So they were doing exactly what they had been taught. Any atrocities they committed was right in line with what they'd been taught. That's a little bit different from the Christians, because they, they, their standard was a little bit different. So there were definitely some things that they should not have done. So then, why do we have this view of the Crusades as being this horrible thing? Well, one of the reasons is because of this guy. Look at him carefully. <laughs> you, you. Sir Stephen Ransom's History of the Crusades has had the greatest impact on current views. He was a historian who used Sir Walter Scott's fictional work called The Talisman. The Talisman was a fictional piece of work that, like, that was supposed to occur during the Third Crusades. And during this fictional work, Saladin was portrayed as this, this noble, wise man. And the Crusaders were portrayed as these barbarians who were uncultured, who were warmongers, who were just evil people. And he basically used that as his guide. And this is why we have the impressions 
the impression that we have today of the Crusades. Like I said, he portrayed the Crusaders as simpletons and barbarians. Here's another legacy. I guess most of y'all, I bet y'all most of y'all didn't even know this. The Muslim world was unaware of the Crusades until recently. You knew that? Guess how they found out about it? Huh? Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, they, they found out about it in the 1900s, but they found out about it because the, the, the Christians or the colonials were the ones who taught them about the Crusades. As late as the 17th century, the Crusaders remained virtually unknown to the Muslim world. The long memory, you know, we hear the Muslims have this long memory. The long memory of the Crusades in the Muslim world is, in fact, a constructed memory, one in which the memory is much younger than the event itself. Most, I'm going to say, up to recently, I mean, what, what Crusades? But, but once it has come out, once, 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 once they learned about it, they decided to capitalize on it. This is Armstrong. Remember Armstrong, who I said was a, an apologist for the Muslims? Listen to what she even says. For the vast majority of Muslims in Iraq, Iran, Central Asia, Malay, Afghanistan, and India, they were remote border incidents. It was only in the 20th century when the West had become more powerful and threatening that the Muslim historians would become preoccupied by the medieval crusades. It's only recently. Even she admits that. There is no connection between the Crusades, no real connection between the Crusades and 9-11. When the Muslims finally united, they dispatched the infidels, and that was all. It is not the Crusades, then, that led to the attacks on September 11, but the artificial memory of the Crusades constructed by modern colonial powers and passed down by Arab nationalists and Islamists. Interesting. And I have, a, I, have a, I have a bibliography of all these people that I'm quoting, all these scholars that I'm quoting, so you can, you can look these up. Mostly what I'm doing here is quoting other people. I mean, you see these quotation marks. I, I didn't come up with this stuff. These are people who are scholars in the field. This is what they are saying. So I'm letting you know what they say. So there is absolutely no connection. They just use that as a connection. <clears throat> Muslims acted worse than the Crusaders did. On well, plenty of occasions. It's not like the Crusaders were, were, was this, this, this isolated incident in history that was so horrible that nothing else can compare. Well, look at, look at some of the Muslims, stuff the Muslims have done. Uh, we have slaughters did occur in the initial way. Because what they, what sometimes what they say is, is that, well, yeah, you know, remember I said before that they said that the Crusaders taught the Muslims how to be warlike? Well, well, that can't be true if they, were, if, if they did atrocities before the Crusades, right? So I'm going to show you some atrocities they did before and after the Crusades. So you can't blame the Crusades on teaching you how to be warlike if you did these things before the Crusades ever happened. So slaughters did occur in the initial wave of the con con in the conquest during the Muslim invasion of Syria in 634. And this is hundreds of years before the Crusades. Thousands of Christians were massacred. 
In Mesopotamia, but 635 and 642, monasteries were ransacked and the monks and villagers slain. In Egypt, the towns, I have dots there because it was like all these different town names that I, I couldn't pronounce and I didn't think it was all that important, were put to the sword. The inhabitants of Cilicia were taken into captivity. In Armenia, the entire population of Eucadia was completely wiped out. This is before the Crusades. They can't blame the Crusades for this. Well, let's look at after the Crusades. When the Muslim Ottoman Empire sought to suppress reforms by the Armenian subjects between 1894, this is recently, 1894, relatively recently, between 94 and 96, estimates of Armenian victims murdered in this two-year period range up to 300,000, with associated destruction to the livelihood and many thousands forcibly converted to Islam. I thought it was Christianity that's the one that's supposed to be forced converting people. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and not only that, uh, actually, I have this here, but, but a few, about five years later, the estimates were up to uh, over a million. Matter of fact, there was a, a letter sent between uh, the President of the United States mentioning the fact that that was, that the Armenian, uh, basically, genocide was the worst atrocity of the entire war, World War, World War I. World War I, there you go. That's, somebody back here knows about World War One. So you knew about this atrocity? You've heard about it? Yes. The church refused to allow anybody in public in the United Nations or any diplomatic person to use the word genocide in regards to what happened. Uh, so basically, we used to have cool and almost declare war against you. They won't have diplomatic relations with anybody who is using the word genocide, even though basically what they did was march the people off into the desert and not give them food or water and march them back. But how can we never hear about that? How can we, I mean, how can we never hear about that? We, we just hear about the, those, 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 those horrible crusaders who killed millions. They don't know where that millions came from. As a matter of fact, I was reading, I was reading uh, one historian, who uh, the first historian that actually documented that, put the figure at 30,000. And then, and then they showed how, how it grew over time. So it went from 30,000 to 100,000 to like 200,000, and now we're up to millions. When it originally started out as 30,000, the person who was closest to the event said 30,000, and we're up to millions now. You're talking about Jerusalem. Right, Jerusalem, that's what I mean. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I do that sometimes. My brain is switched, and I forget to tell everybody else. It drives my wife crazy. She's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> So I've done the introduction, the traditional view, the historical view. Now, well, let's look at the evaluate, let's evaluate these, these views. And why do we have these different views? Well, the current conception of the Crusades is based on modern prejudices that ignore recent scholarship. Even before Russellman wrote his book, however, this is another quote, uh, professional historians have begun to discard the projection of modern agendas onto the medieval crusades, seeking instead to understand the campaign, campaigns in their own terms and within their own context. However, hundreds of scholarly books and thousands of scholarly articles written have thus far failed to move popular perception of the crusades beyond Runciman. Scholars know. It's just you can't see it on TV. 
Scholars know, but you won't, get, you won't see it on the History Channel or on BBC. They're going to show you the politically correct view that Christians bad, Muslims good. The historical perspective, however, is based on recent scholarship. Thanks to the works of scholars like Jonathan Riley Smith, who analyzed large quantities of documents relating to those who actually participated in the Crusades, we have a very different picture of the Crusades than the popularized version. He didn't use a fictional book as his basis. He used actual writings for people who participated in the Crusades, first-hand accounts of people who participated in the Crusades to give a very different picture of what the Crusades were like. So, we have, now let's just summarize everything. The main purpose of the Crusades was, not, was, was to turn back Muslim aggression. That's the main, the main point. The majority of the people who participated were sincere Christians who volunteered out of a sense of duty to Christ. The current politically correct view of the Crusades is inaccurate and based on anti-Christian and anti-West bias. There is no connection between the Crusades and hostilities between Islam and the West today except those invented by Muslims. The acts of the Crusades were not at all out of line with the times and pales in comparison to acts committed by Muslims before and after the Crusades. Okay, any questions? Well, now we had the, you had the Byzantine Empire, you had the Assassin Empire. They were, in, the, in between was Arabia, where, where Muhammad grew up. Now, the interesting thing happened with Muhammad is that Muhammad, he was a very good political leader. This is what Muhammad did, because the way that these tribes were able to make money is that they would usually rob each other. They would raid each other. So Muhammad said, look, guys, have I got a plan for you? Let's band together. Let's make peace in one mother another. And let's go and attack other people and take their booty. And that's what he did. And because, because uh, Arabia was in between this, this, this land, between two different empires, they were on the outskirts of those empires. So it was easy for them to, to because a lot of those, because they were on the outskirts, they weren't well made, I mean, man, or well maintained. And so they were able to come in and just take those things. And they started to become stronger and stronger. Now, on a different note, I do believe that I would, not, I would not disagree with the argument that I believe in some instances it was a judgment on Christianity. When you read the, when you read the first crusades, it's different than some of the other crusades. When you read some of the other crusades, which most failed, and you read how during the crusades, the things that they were doing, like they had like behind the crusades, and I know how this works because I, I was in the military, they had like uh, bands of women who would follow crusades around who were prostitutes. And they were just engaging in all kinds of ungodly things. And you look at some of the crazy things that they did. Let me give you an example. So, uh, I, I think it was the Third Crusade, but this was, this was just bizarre. Remember that map I showed you, how they, they, they like to go to Constantinople, and then they, they meet up together, and then they were supposed to all come across. But, well, what happened was is that 
when they got to that point, I think they, they ran out of money. They were supposed to, they, they didn't have any money left to, to continue on. It takes a lot of money to, to have all these, these, these troops. So one of the, one of the um, someone who was disposed from the Byzantine Empire, one of the, uh, one of the rulers, he was kicked out. And he went to the Crusaders and he said, look, he said, you know, I, would, I was kicked out of my country and it was, it was really, really unfair. And, but if you help me get back in power, then I will reward you. I will send an army to go with you to the Crusades. I will give you money to pay off all your debts. And so the Crusades now, now the Crusaders now, they took their army and went to Constantinople, which is completely away from where they were going, to attack Christians, because the Byzantine Empire was still Christian. So they held, they, they surrounded Constantinople, they sacked the city, destroyed the city, completely decimated. That was to me more of a tragedy than what happened in the Crusades. They destroyed the city, and all in the name of Christ, they killed other Christians. So, and they were doing this type of stuff. They were making, they were, they were, they were, they were making Muslim, they, you had the Byzantine Empire making, making deals with the Muslims, you had it was just all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So I think in, I would not be averse to the fact that the Crusades could have been a, a, a judgment of God upon, upon the Christian Empire because they were, they, they were doing some foul stuff. That's the bottom line. They would, and I'm, I, like, I'm, not, I'm being objective. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, my standard is, 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 is Christ. My standard is the Bible. If, if you, just because you say you're a Christian, if you do something wrong, I'm going to say you're wrong. You know, and they did some wrong stuff. I don't know if I answered your question or not. I, any other questions? I didn't read anything to that effect. I, I didn't read it. I'm not saying it is not. I don't know if it is or not, but I, that's the first time I've ever heard of it. Okay. Yeah, that's about the first I've heard of it. Well, the knights were wealthy. The knights were wealthy. Right. And, the, and also, what was it, black robes, you know, they called them, that they would put on their armor, and when they swore out, they could be priests and stuff. And they went into battle. Right, right. Um, but the other people, I mean, did they, a lot of them convert because they were poor, and they, hey, I'm going to jump along with this, I want to save my skin, and it was money, and, and it would get wealth. I mean, read about well, the Old Testament, yeah. the motivation in the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, some of them, I mean, some of them were, 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 were peasants who were just, I mean, they wanted, they believed that they were doing the right thing for Christ. And, you know, some of them, you know, they wanted the absolution of sins. And they wanted to be able to do the absolution of sins while they were doing something for Christ. I mean, I'm, there were definitely, I'm sure there were some people there who had, you know, personal motives. I mean, you're going to see that in, in any, any large group of people. But for the most part, I think that's what it was. Now, and, and when we became, when we come to the knights, the knights had their own little army, their own little peasant armies. But, you know, a lot of those were there, you know, because I mean, they, 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 they didn't have to go, but they were making the crusades for the same reason as the others, but they were sort of under their sort of knights. They didn't answer to the knights from France or the, or the Pope or anything like that. Well, they still had that personal vow as well. Right. So we're going to self-defend, we'll help fund 
My understanding is that I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about them getting any money. As a matter of fact, what I read is a lot of the knights were selling their properties in order to be able to fund them themselves. Now, what the church did do, the church did say that the, any property that you that you have here when you leave, we're going to make sure that nobody takes it. We're going to make sure that nobody, you know, nobody comes in and tries to claim it. But they didn't give them any money. But they, like, they had to, they had to sell their own property in order to be able to fund their own trips. Anybody else? Okay. With the children's crusades, I read something about that. Um, like, whose fault was it? Did the Pope tell them to go down there, or did they just were they just convicted? Well, there were. Now, here's another thing. There were there were uh, there were a number of things that Pope said to do that that, that people didn't do. For instance, the Pope said that he didn't want the elderly. He, he didn't want the uh, the elderly and the women to go. He didn't want the, uh, those who were clergy, the bishops, he didn't want them to go. But they still went. So there were a lot of people doing things that the Pope never told them to do, but they did it for their own reason because, you know, as, as, as a matter of fact, I remember reading, uh, uh, I think Madden was saying that, you know, the elderly wanted forgiveness of sins too, probably more so. <laughs> And what was really interesting also is they, t- they talk about the siege on Jerusalem, and they were talking about how the Muslims were looking out over this, this sea of, of crusaders, and the crusaders were basically camped around the city singing hymns and praying in bare feet. These are generally the bloodthirsty savages that you generally hear about. And they were doing sermons. People were preaching sermons. Per, uh, Peter the Hermit was one of the famous people who were preaching sermons in order to get people to uh, jump on board for the Crusades. The main thing the Pope did was he convinced the people that it was their Christian responsibility to take up arms to defend the Holy Land. The, he didn't have an army, didn't, didn't, like, didn't pay them. He said, it's your Christian duty as the Pope. I represent Christ, and that's, what he, that's basically what he said. I represent Christ, and I'm saying that it is your Christian duty to, to go and, and, to go and uh, free the Holy Land. That was the, that's basically the Pope's contribution. Anybody else? Why are you differentiating the First Crusade from the other eight? Because they all had different reasons. Like, for instance, we, like the, I think the Second Crusade was because... Uh, Remember now, the first crusades, a lot of people went home. But then, then how do you reinforce the city against Muslims who are coming? So they needed a second crusade. But then also, when Saladin took Jerusalem, then you had more crusades, a number of crusades after that, to retake, to retake the city of Jerusalem. Then you had crusades that were internal. You had crusades that were uh, uh, by the church to persecute other Christians who were considered heretics. So you had, like I said, crusades started to mean anything after a while. The first crusades, I mentioned that one because it's the purest one. It's, it's the one that had the most, uh, uh, the most drive behind it. And it was the biggest, and it was the most successful one. The rest of them were, you know, not very successful. Did you get the date for the first one? Yes, I did. I think 1096s, I think, is when the... Uh, Pope set the date for, for the crusade to begin, I believe. I think it was 1096. Isn't it? Okay. Is it? Okay. I think it's 1096. Now, also, now I didn't go into a lot of detail, 
But also, these are, you know, there's some weird things that happen because he set that day for 1096. But then you have, remember you have all these different armies supposed to meet up at Constantinople. That caused issues by itself because now you got all these armies there and who's, who's supposed to be feeding all these armies? So then you even had fights break out between the Byzantine Empire and the Crusading armies because the Crusading armies were like, you didn't supply us with supplies in order to, you know, keep ourselves afloat while we're waiting on the other Crusaders to come. And so there was a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh, just infighting going on. As a matter of fact, it got to the point where, where the, uh, the emperor, each, each major person that came along, each major knight that came along, he would make a bargain with them. Remember now, uh, once you get the crusade back, uh, you're going to have to, uh, it belongs to the king. It belongs to me. It, belongs back to the, it goes back to the, to the kingdom from where you know, you know, it came. And if the crusader re, uh, rejected that, then he would cut off food to them. <laughs> It wouldn't, wouldn't allow them to have ships. And, and one army actually fought back. So you, got, you have crusaders fighting against the army that, that, that actually is supposed to be helped. There were all kinds of crazy stuff going on. I didn't want to get into all that, all that crazy detail, but I try to give you the highlights. Anything else? Uh, I would recommend, yeah, I would recommend for Muhammad, I would recommend the sword and the prophet. Uh, that is uh, Triskovic. Now, as far as, now, I, I would recommend Riley Smith, but his stuff, his stuff gets really detailed and really technical. But I tell you, I would, Madden is the one I use the most. It's, it's, uh, it's enough detail, but not too detailed. But he'll give, you, he'll give you an overview of all the Crusades. He'll give you from, from beginning to finish all the Crusades. His name is uh, Thomas F. Madden, and the name of the book is called The New Concise History of the Crusades. Well, thank you. Thank you.